Church, we are in Ezra chapter 1 this morning. We did an overview last week of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to begin in chapter 1. So we will again this morning read Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, that the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah, Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought up the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of the gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithredith, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. And all vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. And these did Sheshbazar bring up with the exiles when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. In his book, God in the Wasteland, Professor David Wells, professor of theology at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, wrote, There was a time when, in America, evangelicals prized and cultivated biblically chaste Christian thought and an analysis of this culture from that perspective. But the past few decades have seen an erosion of the old distinctions, a gradual descent into the self-movement, a psychologizing of the faith and an adaptation of Christian belief to a therapeutic culture. Distracted by the blandishments of modern culture, we have lost our focus as biblical people and seeking biblical truth. We have been beguiled by the efficiency of our culture's technique, the sheer effectiveness of its strategies, and we have begun to play by these rules. Now we blithely speak of marketing the gospel like any other commodity, oblivious to the fact that such rhetoric betrays a vast intrusion of worldliness into the church. Is he right? This was written 30 years ago. The church needs renewal. The church needs to identify and acknowledge just how ingrained 
we are with the culture around us. American Christians once prized and pursued pure Christian doctrine and thought and analyzed the world from that position. But now we've been marketed to, we've been charmed, we've been persuaded and pursued, persuaded to pursue the American dream or some variation of it and to be faithful Christians. That we want to be citizens of this world. We want to be citizens of the world around us and we want to be citizens of the kingdom to come, of Christ's kingdom. We want to have a foot in both worlds, a people of the world and a people of God. Furthermore, we are convinced that we're good gospel witnesses because we have a good confession as Christians from time to time, maybe even once a week or once a month. If we're, if we're really good Christians, we pray for a lost person we know. Someone who has rebelled against God, someone who's dead in their sin, their life is empty, they're hopeless, they're destined for hell, and if we think about it, we pray for them because we're Christians. That's what we do. So we struggle with this tension of living in this world. We do life here. We raise our kids here. We have to, we have, to have houses to live in. We have to have cars to drive. We, we need jobs to work. These are all good things. The tension in our hearts is obeying the command of Christ, belonging to him, being his people, not being people of the world. The book of Ezra is about God's faithfulness, that God is faithful to restore and renew his people. God's people were in captivity, undergoing God's discipline because they kept trying to serve both God and the world. They wanted to be like the other nations. They just kind of wanted to fit in. We want to be like them, but we still kind of want to be God's people. This is a tension we feel in our own hearts as we are trying to, to follow the Lord, be God's people, be obedient. But again, we live here. We have to do life here, work, friends, family. In Ezra chapter 1, we see that God fulfills his promises. God fulfills his promises, and God provides for his people. God is trustworthy and reliable. So as we think about this, how do we kind of understand our culture and how we're so ingrained in our culture, right? How do we begin to trust God, not trust kind of the, the way of things around us, be dependent and rely on him, not on our own understanding, not on our, our own wit, or own, our own ability to, to make things happen or to make money or to, to get things going for us. We rely on God. We can trust God when he makes these promises. We can rely on him with our needs. God fulfills his promises. Look here in the first verse, Ezra 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. We looked at this couple last week. Turn with me again to Jeremiah. It's to the right, past um, Isaiah, past Proverbs and Psalms, Isaiah. And you're going to hit Jeremiah. You're going to go to Jeremiah 29. So keep flipping Jeremiah 29. If you get into Ezekiel, you've gone too far. This 
again, is the word. This is what God stirred up in Cyrus. I don't know exactly how, if he was reading or, or what was going on, but, but these words out of Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, not to give you a future, excuse me, not for evil, but to give you a future and a hope, a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, gathering you from all the nations and all places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to this place from which I sent you into exile. So we, again, we know that God sent his people into exile. This wasn't by happenstance. This wasn't a mistake. God didn't kind of like blow it. Man, I, I lost my people somehow. They got carried away. We got to figure this out. He sent them into exile. He disciplined them lovingly, graciously disciplined them. And then he promised that he would bring them back again. God will bring his people back. Now we know as Christians in the new covenant, Christ has come and, and Christ has died for our sins. He's paid the price for those things. We're adopted into his family. We're in the new covenant. So there's a parallel here. There's a similarity here in that God will again, Christ will again come and he will again gather his people together from all the nations, from every tongue and tribe, Scripture says. He will gather his people together we will praise him. We will worship him for eternity. But God is fulfilling his promise to his people right here in Jeremiah chapter 29. We see this being fulfilled in Ezra 1. God's fulfilling this. So then King Cyrus, he issues this decree. God has given me all the lands of the earth. And to be fair, he, he dominated most of the earth at this point. Very powerful guy. Lots of nations did he kind of subdue and bring under his authority and his reign. And he says, I'm going to send them back that they may worship their God and build the temple to their God, to their God in Jerusalem. God fulfills his promises. So two things I just want to see here is that God fulfills his promises with worldly leaders. Cyrus, King Cyrus, it appears, is a polytheist. He believes in many gods. He believes that there's multiple gods. And you can kind of worship your God, and you worship your God, I'll worship my God, and we'll just kind of do our thing. You build your temple, and it's all going to work out. That's his view. The Lord worked in his heart, as one says, to make a declaration, to make a declaration that I'm going to return, let you return to your people. Now, it's interesting, about 150 years ago, so the second half of the 1800s, they discovered something called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's a clay cylinder. It's in the muse British Museum right now. And on that, there is an inscription that is very, very similar to what we read in Ezra 1. About how King Cyrus was kind of sending people back to their homelands, being gracious to them. It was even this wicked guy who doesn't fear God, he doesn't really care about God, but the Lord worked in his heart, stirred his spirit. It doesn't say he became a believer. 
the Lord worked. He was unaware that God was stirring his spirit. So likewise, the Lord is over all things. We say that God's sovereign. The Lord's over this. We trust the Lord. But do we believe it? We live in a day and age day and age where there's war, there's, there's rumors of war, people are kind of coming out unhinged, and, and most po political leaders are, are not fearful of the God of the Bible. They're not desiring to worship him. But God is over all leaders. From Joe Biden to Vladimir Putin, the Lord is over them. Listen, there are no rogue leaders out there. There's no world leader who's just kind of going rogue and somehow he just kind of slipped out of God's control and he's just out there doing his thing. Now, listen, I'm not saying that there's, they all, they're being good leaders. I'm not saying that they're not against God. They're, most of them are doing wicked, evil things. But make no mistake about it. They are under God's sovereign rule. So Christian, brother, sister, sleep well. God is sovereign. God fulfills his promise even with worldly leaders and worldly people. God fulfills his promise on his timeline. This is something we struggle with. My time, when's this going to work out? These are my plans. I, I, I want to honor the Lord, but I do have my plans. So God, can you honor that? Because this is important to me. God works at his own pace, and it's perfect. It's so basic. It's so basic. It's so simple. You can grab anyone, anyone you want. Grab someone, someone who doesn't even believe in God and ask them this question. Is God's timeline dependent on your schedule? Is God's plan for all things, is it kind of hitched up to your agenda? And the answer is No. It's not. It's in his time that he fulfills his promises. God's timing is unknown to us as believers, but we're never left in the dark. God always tells his people what he's doing. Before he sent them into exile, he told them, hey, listen, you keep rebelling, you're going to go to exile. They kept rebelling. He said, okay, listen, to the prophets, you're going to go to exile. He's always up front with his people. This is what you need to do. He did this with Abraham. He said, Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. This is how it's going to go. He did this um, with David, with Saul, with the nation. When, when they were crying out for a king, he said, okay, I'll give you a king. And this is what's going to happen. Just, he's always up front with his people. Always. We're never left in the dark. We don't know his timeline, but we know what he is doing. Same way in the New Covenant. Christ comes, he, he tells the disciples what's going to happen. He's going to be crucified, he's going to be buried, he's going to be dead for three days, and then raised from the dead. He tells them again and again and again. Then he, the church age comes, he, we're given um, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and the church begins to spread, and we're, we're told what the church is supposed to do. The church is given the instruction. It's always clear what God wants us to do. We're, we don't know God's timeline, but we do know what he wants us to do. He's never left us in the dark. Now, we don't know. We just finished First and Second Thessalonians, all about the return of Christ. We do not know when he will return, but guess what? We know he will return, right? We don't know when, and it's not for us to know. We're to be faithful to him because we know he will return. God is clear with his people. What a gracious thing. What a, he doesn't have to be. 
He, he lovingly, graciously is clear with us. God's timing is happening. What's going on right now, what's going on in your life, with the Lord's working in you, what's going on with the nations, God's timeline is happening now. John 16, says, I have said these things to you that, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tri tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So even in the midst of God doing his timeline and where we know what he's doing, our hearts are quick to be troubled. We're concerned. Some of that's understandable. There's a lot going on. But we trust in him because he has overcome the world. Psalm 27, 14, I love this verse, says, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. So even in the midst of the unknown, even in the midst of the, the trial, the situation we're going through, the instruction is clear. Wait for the Lord. He will rescue. He will not abandon you. Wait for him. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. God fulfills his promises. As his covenant people, we know we can depend on him. We don't need to be like the world who's kind of depending on the God, but kind of hedging our bets. If that doesn't pan out for me, well, at least I have this. If this thing kind of flakes out, well, at least I've, I've kind of planned and I've prepared well, so I'm going to be okay. Christ, he calls us all in, everything. Push all the chips in on him, nothing else, no one else but Jesus Christ, for he has overcome the world. God fulfills his promises to his people. God provides for his people. Verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah, and Benjamin, and the priests, and the Levites, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So he begins to call these people. This this language of God stirring the spirit of those is the same language as verse 1. And Cyrus, God is prompting, he's calling, he's working, he's having his way, fulfilling his plan. And we see that God provides community for his people. He provides camaraderie. There's a group that's going with them together. And there's a group that actually stays behind. So they think about 50,000 people went with this first wave to, back to Jerusalem. 50,000 strong leaving Persia, going back to rebuild the temple. God stirs up their spirit. It's interesting. Some, some people I was reading were commenting like, like man, those people who, who God's spirit, they didn't stir. They were being disobedient. God didn't stir their spirit. This is something as Christians, we need to be mindful that, that God has called us to be faithful to him. And what God calls us to is the way we walk that out is different for different people. We're in different situations. We're, we're, we have, some people have kids. Some people don't have kids. Some people, kind of their careers is easy for them to fulfill a, a vocational ministry. For some people, it's, they're, they're just in the trenches with the children. They're like, what, what am I supposed to do? I just have kids all the time. I can't serve the Lord. God places us where he does. He calls us, stirs in our spirit, 
to be obedient to him. Now, we don't want to be confused because he calls us to obedience and to faithfulness. So the, although God has called me to one thing and he's called Ron to something else, he's called Dave to something else, we're all called to something. We're to be obedient to God. We're to honor God the same way. We're to fulfill the, com- the commands of Christ. We're to obey Scripture to do what he has called us to do. But this is a, reveals the Lord has called some of the people to come and go out to Jerusalem. He's saying, listen, I am the one building this house. I stirred the spirit of Cyrus on my timeline to fulfill my promise. I'm stirring the spirit of 50,000 who are going to go leave what they've known for 70 years. For most of them, that's all they knew. They're going to come and they're going to go to Babylon, or from Babylon to Jerusalem. Psalm 127, 1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord does the work. And so often, we, we kind of, we feel a sense from the Lord or, or a calling or, or something, and we think, okay, I'm just going to go do this thing. I'm going to go, i got to be obedient to what God's called me to, so I'm going to go do this. And we set out by ourselves with no counsel, with no people around us, thinking that somehow, that because the Lord called me, okay, that I'm going to go build the house. And it's not what Scripture says. We go with God's people to do God's work. We go with God's people to do God's work. It's interesting for those who stayed behind, because as as this narrative lays out through Ezra and Nehemiah, we know that the first wave, Ezra wasn't even there. They were led by some guy named Zerubbabel or something, right? 50,000 people. Well, who's going to come 80 years later? Ezra, he stayed behind. His family stayed behind. So they then go after all those years. That's God's timing, God's plan, God's promises, working itself out. So Ezra then brings another wave of people with him. Then 10 years after that, Nehemiah brings people back to Jerusalem. So even though there's this tension like, well, why didn't they all just pack up and go? Why were there people staying behind? Surely those, there are people who have that feeling in their heart, like, why aren't you going? They are being obedient to what God had called them to. And then there's just this list of treasure troves provided for them. All these things, gold, these vessels, all the stuff that, that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple. It's given back, right? So God provides a community and then God provides resources, right? The king Cyrus, he's like, hey, take what you need. We know that when Ezra went, um, Darius says, hey, take what you need. When Nehemiah went, he said, take what you need. God provides resources for his people. These people are, it's fascinating. They're leaving captivity. They're slaves, right? They're slaves, 70 years. They're leaving it with great wealth. I mean, they're just, they got riches strapped to their back, leaving slavery, rich. Now imagine for a moment You have been hearing for decades and decades and decades that that God is going to fulfill his promise to his people. You've been hearing these things. You've heard the stories about what it used to be like in the temple and how the temple was laid out and what all the objects and the vessels were and, and how important they were. But you've never seen these things. You've never been to these places. And after all this time, you see these vessels. 
all these stolen things. They're just things, but they, they symbolize something. They're tools for the temple. And you see them being carried out. You're like, hey, that's, that's that one thing that was for the one thing, you know? All this time, we're, we're seeing it. It's like, it's becoming real. Like, the bags are packed. They're emptying the treasury. I guess we're going to go to Jerusalem. How exciting as followers of God. You know that God has provided not just you and your family, 50,000 people in the, the treasures of Persia to go with you. God promised that he would bring his people back. He promised it. And God preserved those tools that were used in the temple. Now, if you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Into the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 6. It's important that we have perspective on God's provision. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is giving the instructions. This is what it says beginning in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For he, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory will not be arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But first... Verse 33, but first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. But first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But first seek God. Obey God. Listen to God. Strive to follow God. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. Amen. As God's people, we rest and we find our contentment in God. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a person who belongs to Jesus. You're not trusting in yourself for peace or tranquility. You're not trusting or looking to yourself for purpose or for joy. You're not trusting or looking to yourself to earn God's favor. You follow Jesus. You've turned from your sin, your rebellion, your selfishness, your waywardness, your judgmental heart, 
You follow God and God alone. For God alone is your salvation. God always fulfills his promise. Always. He always provides for his people. When the first wave left Babylon and went to Israel, they were leaving the culture, the people, to follow the Lord. As people of the kingdom of God, we are to live differently than those around us. There is a distinction. I want to be clear here. This is, a, this is a line that we often can get off on. I'm not saying we often dress weird or we have to drive cars that are all 30 years old or older. I'm not saying we have to do all these things, but we do live differently. Why we have a house is different because we're Christians. We own a home, or we live in a home, and we rent a place because we want to house our family, and we want to raise them to love the Lord. We want to use that space to be hospitable and to show others the love of Christ. We have cars, we have clothing, we have bank accounts. We have all these things for one reason, and that is to follow Jesus Christ for no other thing. If you're looking to those things for satisfaction or for your identity or your fulfillment or for anything other than, I want to use this to honor the Lord because in reality it was the Lord who gave it to you. Then you're using it for the wrong reasons and it will corrupt you for you cannot serve two masters. We the church, we need renewal. We need the Lord to restore our love for him. As David cried out in Psalm 51, restore the joy of my salvation. That should be our cry regularly. Lord, restore the joy of my salvation. Restore the joy that that I'm saved by you. I'm no longer in death, no longer pursuing the things of the world. Restore my joy. Restore my love for you. So we're called to live for Christ. But again, we must be aware of the slow, corrosive effect of the things of the world. And we live here. We're not going anywhere. We're not going to bug out and kind of build a compound and do our thing. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what he called us to. We are to be like Christ with those who are around. We are to be aware, again, of how easily we take the world and we take our faith and we want to just kind of weave them together nicely. We belong to the kingdom of God, to his kingdom. Christian, I want you to be encouraged. Be encouraged. Take heart because Jesus, King Jesus, he has come. He has died for your sins. He has shown you great love and mercy. God has adopted you in and you belong to him. You belong to him. You have the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, dwelling within you. So take heart. Even as we're trying to navigate all these things, the confusion of the world, and the difficulty of of living here, but being a part of a, a, a kingdom to come, and all these things. Brother, sister, take heart. God has redeemed you. Friend, if you have rejected God's call to repentance into life. I want you to know two things. If you continue to reject 
God, whether this is with your words and your actions or just your actions, eventually you will be given over to your desire completely. You'll be given completely over to that desire that is against God. And you will spend eternity in hell being tormented by Satan, separated from your creator because you continue to reject your creator. The second thing I want you to know is this. God and God alone can save you. Not your good works, not your good deeds, not your church attendance, and no one is too far gone. No one is beyond God's grace. No one. And there isn't a soul who does not need God's grace. Seek Jesus Christ, and he will save you. John six thirty seven says this. All that the Father gives me, this is Jesus speaking, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's pray.